You're listening to Straight from the Pulpit. Here you will find sermons taken directly from the pulpit of Shenandoah Baptist Church in Verona, Virginia. We preach Christ, study the Word of God, and help the Christian grow spiritually by applying God's Word to their lives. For more information or to read the pastor's blog, go to sbcverona.com. That is sbcverona.com. Uh, we uh, are on chapter 55 of Isaiah this evening, and uh, Isaiah 53, man, it was good. 54 was good because it was encouraging and comforting, you know, comforting the desolate. We get to chapter number 55, and this also is very comforting. And we look here at a, an everlasting covenant that is between God and his people Israel, and we can also see how this, to a certain extent, extends to us, his people, as well. But we'll look at that as we go along here. Isaiah chapter number 55. Let's begin reading in verse number 1. and We'll read the first two verses. It says this. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Let's have a word of prayer here, and then we'll dig in here to Isaiah chapter number 55. Dear Lord, we do thank you for the great blessing it is to be gathered together here in your house, and uh, Lord, I thank you for the folks that have come out this evening, and I pray that you would just speak mightily through your word. Lord, I pray that you would uh, open up our eyes to scriptures this evening and that you would teach us. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us. Lord, I pray that you would give us something this evening in these verses of Isaiah 55 that we need it or that we may need tomorrow. Lord, you know. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to just really dig into the scripture, Lord, as the scripture, that's, that's where the life is, Lord. That's your word. Lord, that's how you desire to speak from us. You don't want to hide your mysteries from us. You don't want us to go on walking in the dark. You don't, you don't desire to watch us spin around in circles, not knowing where to step our, to put our foot next. Lord, you desire for us to know. You desire for us to understand. You desire to walk with us and you've given us your word to enable us to be able to walk close to you by knowledge, Lord, by knowing you, because we've been in your word. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to see a glimpse of who you are here in this passage, and that we would be able to find not just encouragement, but hope and also direction, Lord, in our upcoming steps. And I pray for your hand of blessing upon this service, and that you'd be pleased with the things that are done and said now. And we ask it in your son's name, I pray. Amen. The very first word of chapter 55, Ho! You know, when you hear that word, I immediately think of, you know, Westerns when uh, they're riding the horses or got the carriage going behind them and they start, ho, ho, and they mean, you know, stop, slow down. 
Uh, it needs to be a, a noise that's loud enough to carry over the, the hoof beats, that's loud enough to carry over the, you know, the jiggling and noise rattling of the carriage that is being pulled or the wagon that's being pulled. It's got to be loud enough to make it over the top of sometimes if it's a whole bunch of people and a whole bunch of horses, man, it's got to be a loud noise. It's like, yo, ho, ho. And they're saying, you know, stop, stop and trying to get the attention of the horses and all of the riders following them to stop and listen. A preacher once said, Ho, this is a gospel note, a short, significant appeal urging you to be wise enough to attend to your own interests. Oh, the condescension, oh, the condescension of God, that he should, as it were, become a beggar to his own creature and stoop from the magnificence of his glory to cry, Ho! To the foolish and ungrateful man. Think about that. Here is the God of the universe, the creator of the universe. And he is, in one sense, stooping down to try to stop mankind in their hurried ways and busyness, in their religiousness, and say, ho, ho, stop, stop, and listen to me. Here's the creator condescending being as almost like a beggar to his own created beings. He says, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money. He says, if you're thirsty, come to the waters. Why does it seem like he has to beg? But when we look at these, we ought not to just see someone who is thirsty, someone who is hungry, or someone who has an appetite that needs to be filled. Just like in verse number two at the very end, he says, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. This isn't a message on go out and eat whatever you want. Uh, I've heard plenty of Baptists use verses like this, you know, eat the fat, drink the sweet uh, to justify, you know, their poor eating habits. Uh, I think I think that's not at all what it's talking about here. And I'm going to talk about that. but. The prophet calls out here loud and clear to all that can hear. It's an important announcement. He says to everyone that thirsteth, here is an invitation. But notice what the invitation is to. It's to the thirsty. It's to the thirsty. You see, you can put out a gospel message online, and it may go before the eyes of a thousand people, but only 50 of those may actually watch it. And maybe none of them will actually believe it. I'm putting out there, you can put out there the water of life. We can go and hit all the doors in Verona. I don't know how many hundreds or thousands of doors that may be. And we can put the water of life on those doors. But we cannot make Verona thirsty. You ever heard the saying, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink? You can bring the water of life, the gospel, the word of God. You can bring the Savior to every man's door, the door of every man's heart. But you cannot make them thirsty. I made a statement in a Wednesday night service a couple weeks back, three or four weeks back now. It might have been Isaiah 53. But I made the statement that the only thing that can make the gospel attractive is the Holy Spirit. And so we have to be careful to not dress up the gospel and try to make it seem so attractive and appealing. Like uh, I saw a, a, a she preacher 
uh, from a church on Sunday night in her, you know, church. She had, you know, a, a football jersey on and there was a guy up on the stage with a, you know, a, a referee shirt. And then there was a, another guy up there dressed like a football player. And she literally ran up and punted a Bible across the stage, punting the word of God. I think in all reality, they have punted the word of God out of the building, which is why they're behaving like they are. Of course, you can hear all sorts of really weird things going on in churches, gimmicks, gimmicks to try to draw people in to say, hey, look how hip we are. Look, see, I even know that, you know, today's, you know, Super Bowl Sunday and we've prepared for that. And, and so now we want to uh, let you know that by how we're dressed and, you know, rather than just simply imparting the word of God to the people. They make a gimmick out of it. You see, you can bring the word of God. You can bring the water, but you cannot make them thirst. And so he says, oh, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. They're here. They're open for everyone, but that's not all. He says, he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. You know, those who do thirst and they answer the Lord's invitation, they don't need to bring any money. Their money isn't going to do them any good anyways. They simply need to bring their faith. They simply need to bring their trust that the person calling them is offering freely what it is they're desiring. What does this sound a whole lot like to you? Sounds a whole lot like the gospel to me. And in a sense, maybe that's exactly what this is. Yes, I understand that God is speaking to Israel here, that God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah to his people Israel, that one day they're going to get to return back to Jerusalem, and he's offering them a message of hope. But ultimately, we know that he is speaking to some event that yet has yet to even happen, too. There was the you know short-term fulfillment of Israel actually returning from Babylon, but then there's the long-term fulfillment as well. And we're going to see much more of that in chapter 5, too. But I cannot help but see the gospel in here. After all, the Jews have to get saved the same way everybody else do, does. After all, Abraham, he was justified by faith, the Bible says, just like you and I are justified by faith, just like they will be justified by faith during um, the Great Tribulation as well. It is justification by faith. He says, come, buy, eat, even if you don't have any money. Then we see here um, in verse number, well, back in verse 1, come buy, eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. These products, milk and wine, these are things that cost money. You must have something you know, to go just beyond water. Water was the free thing. You want water unless you're going to like Dairy Queen or something like that. You know, then they're going to charge, or, or Duncan, you know, they charge you a dollar just for a cup. Uh, so you can put some water in it. That's ridiculous. I'll thirst to death before <laughs> I'll pay a, a dollar for uh, a cup to put water in at Dunkin' Donuts. I go other, although I, I don't suggest getting water at Burger King because their water tastes weird. Uh, but I'll, I'll leave that aside as well. <laughs> now I won't pay for water. But then you go on to wine and to go on to milk and these other drinks that they had during that time. And you would expect to have to pay for those kind of luxuries. Think about this. Salvation, you know, uh, this, this free gift of salvation, the very, the very starting point of the Christian life. This is the water of life. 
You get saved, you receive the water of life. Does God say, okay, I got you this far. Now I need you to do the rest. Now you need to be on your best behavior. Now you need to uh, fulfill all the good works to keep your salvation. And now it's on you. I did the redeeming and the purchasing up to this point, And now it's on you. Your righteousness is from this point on is on you. Is that what he's saying? No. What he's saying is the opposite. I provided you the water, but I will also provide you the milk. You know, this is that milk for the young as they grow spiritually in the Lord. And I'll provide for you also the wine, what they drink as they get older. I will provide those things to help you to grow spiritually. God is taking the onus off of Israel and off of us as the church for spiritual growth and placing it upon himself. Now, we can choose to not scoot up to the table. We can choose to stay at home or stay on the couch. We can choose not to feast upon the riches of his word, but nevertheless, he calls out, Ho! If you're thirsty, come and get it. If you're hungry, come and get it. doesn't matter if you don't have any money. I offer to you right here the riches and the fatness of God. He says, Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Here in his invitation, God is asking his people to ask themselves a question. Why are you spending money for something that cannot satisfy? Why are you putting all of your time and your efforts into things which are only short-term happiness gains, but not into the long-term eternal gains? It's a relevant question to Israel and even today. In the light of all the things that we pour our time and our money and our effort into, the things which will never satisfy, they'll never satisfy the way the Lord will satisfy. I'm not saying that we can't ever put money into other things or time into any other things. But as a, as a parent, you know, I've had to make a decision uh, of whether or you know, how much time am I willing to give over to you know, sports for the kids or how much time am I willing to put into this or to that? Not because we have priorities and there are things that are the most important to us. And anything that's going to get on the way of going to church, anything that's going to get in the way of being at, you know, soul winning and men's prayer breakfast and other things, anything that's going to get in the way has to kind of get shoved off to the side because there are other things that are more important than some, than some other things. We have to have priorities. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread? God says, right here, I have the buffet for you. I have exactly what you need to stay alive. You're out there working and working and working and toiling on your own for something that is never going to satisfy. He could be saying this to the Jewish folks who are still resting and, and, and upon their own good works. This could be applied to the Judaizers of the New Testament. Why are you still out there trying to pay for something that was given freely? Something that will never satisfy. I believe it was Spurgeon that said this, You are not permitted to drink freely of water and then to purchase wine. 
You are not invited to come and eat freely that which is good and then to spend your labor for that which is fat. No, the richest dainties of God's house are as free as the bread he gives to the hungry souls. What are we seeing in this passage? How do we apply this to ourselves? We can see into the heart of God from this passage by seeing the way he speaks to his children. But look what he says next. He says, hearken diligently unto me and eat ye that which is good and let your soul delight itself in fatness. So the invitation is clear. The offer here is made. The provision is made. The table is set. Everything is available. But there are some things here that he says to do. First, he says, listen diligently. Hearken diligently. You know, God offers the water of life. God offers the richness and the fatness of his presence and of his word to us. But what do we need to do? We need to hearken. We need to listen. How is it that two people can come into a church service and one find richness and sweetness in the message or in the passage that was used, and yet another can find it extremely boring? Both Christians, one, the Lord works in their heart, and the other found it cold and dead. Why? How could it be? Both? Or is it that only one was inclining their ear, as it says in verse number <clears throat> verse number three? We're to listen diligently. Second, it says we must eat what is good. <clears throat> eat that which is good. That requires some discernment. We need to choose what is good, then eat that. Not just turning on YouTube or turning on the TV and intaking whatever spiritual things happen to come our way. No, we need to very carefully and discerningly choose what spiritual meal is set before us, that it is good. I saw a video today about uh, a guy, He, I guess he's a worship leader in a megachurch somewhere, and he was using uh, ChatGPT. That's an AI platform. You can basically type in what you want it to do. I, I told it today, I went to ChatGPT. I'm like, write me a love song for my wife, Rachel, for Valentine's Day. And so it gave me three verses, a chorus and a, and a bridge. I said, oh, and um, give me uh, chords uh, in the key of C. And then it wrote a song, gave me a melody, put it in the key of C for me. Uh, so all I had to do was sit there and play it and read the words and sing to it. Now, it wasn't the best song in the world, but it rhymed. Uh, and it certainly had all of the relevant words that a love song is supposed to have. And it had the right harmonies and rhythm and everything and chord progressions that a you know, modern love song would have in it. You could ask ChatGPT to write a book for you. Like, okay, write me a 2,000-word book on this topic. And it will go and it will write you a 2,000 book word with introductions and conclusions and main points and everything on a topic. Uh, you know, there's a ton of books out there coming out these days that are um, AI authored books with somebody else's name on it. You got to watch out for that kind of stuff. But I was watching this guy and he used AI to write a worship song, a contemporary Christian worship song. And he had it write the words and he didn't change the words at all. He even had it write the chord progressions 
you know, the music and didn't change it at all. And then he went and he recorded all of that, sang the words, uh, played his guitar, add the drums and everything. He even added in some uh, crowd noise as if it was being sung live. And then he uploaded it. He got it licensed um, and it went viral. People loved this contemporary worship song, which AI had generated based upon the uh, general characteristics of the usual CCM song. It was very interesting as I listened to him describe it. And he said, he said his dad asked him this question. Yeah, he, well, he was, he was curious, like, why is it that this caught on so much? If you look at the lyrics, there's really not a whole lot going on in the lyrics, but everybody loved it. Why is it? It's just a stereotypical CCM song. His dad said, do you think that AI could write a hymn? And this worship leader is like, you know what? I don't think it could because hymns are too rich. They're too deep. AI wouldn't be able to grasp that. Interesting thought. We need to choose that which is good. You know, there are some songs out there that there's nothing wrong with them, but they're kind of like eating oatmeal cream pies, you know. Uh, they're, they're fluff. They're light. There's nothing deep to them. There's not much protein. There's not much nutrients. Uh, very little to them except for just sweet and enjoyable. And not that to say that there's never room for sweet and enjoyable music, because there is. But there also needs to be space for things which are doctrinally rich and deep. And that's mainly why we sing the hymns that we sing. Now, there are new hymns out there that are very doctrinally rich and deep. And, um, you know, there are a lot of churches are implementing some of these newer hymns, and uh, some of those are very, very good hymns. But we need to be discerning concerning it. Third is we need to let your soul delight itself in fatness, it says. You know, even when we determine to listen and we choose to eat that which is good, we still need to let our soul delight itself in fatness. Or another good word to use here is abundance. Let your soul delight itself in abundance. You know, it's quite possible to sit down to a great meal with a stubborn attitude and refuse to like it. You ever met a five-year-old or a three-year-old? Uh, they can sit down to a great meal, but they're in a bad mood, and so they've determined in their heart that they're just going to be mad no matter what, even if it's their favorite meal. Sometimes they'll make something new, and one of the kids will go, what is it? What is it? And we tell them, then they're like, have we ever had that before? And we say, no. And then there's one, one kid especially that's always like, oh, you know, I'm going to hate it. I'm going to hate it. I just know I'm going to hate it. And that just sets the tone for them. They've just decided they're going to hate this meal. And sometimes, you know, they, they change their mind in the midst of the meal and uh, suddenly are, you know, happy with the meal. But it's quite possible to sit down to a buffet with a bad spirit and to get very little out of it. He says, delight it. Delight in that abundance. Let, let your soul delight itself in fatness. And we simply won't let ourselves delight in it. Man, when we sit down in the, in the house of God, when we are singing during those hymns, I know it's the same song you've sung ever since you're like five or even younger than that. I'm sure I was singing it in my mom's womb before I was even born. You know, it was the same songs, many of them, that we've been singing for so long. And sometimes it's just the, the nostalgia, maybe. And sometimes we just sing it out of rote memory. But to stop and consider the words fresh and anew. Sometimes I like taking old hymns and putting them to new melodies. 
Some people don't like that sort of thing. You know, why are you messing with it? Well, sometimes the old melody is ugly <laughs> and the new melody is pretty. Uh, other times, it's just to cause us to listen to the words again. Rather than just doing it over and over and over again and we begin become numb to it, it kind of forces us to think about those words once more. You can sit down to a great spiritual meal. But by your stubborn or bad attitude, simply refuse to let your soul delight itself in abundance. Sometimes it's because of the preacher. Sometimes it's because of the person sitting next to us or because of the, the spat that we had before we left the house. Sometimes it's because we're upset or we're angry or we're tired or any other number of things that we cannot, will not sit there and just let the Lord speak to us and revel in the fatness and the abundance of the Word of God. And I tell you what, Isaiah 55 is full of it. I love it. Look at the next <clears throat> verses here. He says, Incline your ear, and come unto me. Hear, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. He's talking about David. Why? He goes on to talk about David more. Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people, a leader and commander to the people. Behold, thou shalt call a nation that thou knowest not, and nations that knew not thee shall run unto thee because of the Lord thy God and for the Holy One of Israel. For he hath glorified thee. We go back to verse 3 where he says, Incline your ear and come unto me. You know what incline your ear means? If you sometimes will see me, you're talking to me and I turn my head like this. I'm not, I'm not, you know, specifically trying to look away from you because I don't like the look of your face. Most of you anyways, but um, if I, I'm, I'm turning my ear directly towards you so that I can hear. Sometimes I do it and I think, why am I doing that? Because I can hear if I'm looking at you. But sometimes if there's a, a multiple people talking, like if I'm sitting in a restaurant and I'm trying to talk to somebody, sometimes I'll turn my ear toward them so that I can pick out what they're saying in the midst of the, the other noise that's blocking my hearing anyways. Maybe I need a hearing test, but um, sometimes I'll incline my ear. You know, I'll turn my ear so that I can get a better sound. When I'm sitting out in the woods hunting, I, uh, if it's really, really cold out there, man, I get this uh, toboggan. It's one of those that just has a place for my eyes and a place for, my, no, no, just a place for my eyes, that one does. And it's camouflage. And you know, turkeys, turkeys have really, really good eyesight. So really, you need to have as much camouflage as possible because they'll pick you out way easier than a deer will pick you out. And so I would, I like to have that down over my face because it's, you know, it's 20 degrees outside and the wind's blowing and I'm in a tree that's blowing in the wind. I, I want my, everything covered as much as I can. But if I have something over my ears, it makes it hard to hear. I want to hear every twig snap. I want to hear every leaf rustle. If a leaf falls out of the tree 20 yards that direction, I want to hear that leaf hit every single branch on its way down before it finally lands on the ground. And I want to hear the squirrel that starts squawking at it. You know, I want to hear every little thing that's going on in that woods because I don't want a deer to sneak up on me and me not know it. I was sitting in a tree stand one time behind Dale's house and I was just sitting there, sitting there, sitting there. And it was about time for me to leave. I had gone there at, um, at dawn or just well before dawn and sat there until a little while after dawn. And I was getting ready to come over to the church afterwards. And I was about to stand up and move. And I heard a little bit of a noise and I looked down 
And down on the ground below behind me, there's a doe. Somehow she snuck up on me. I didn't hear her. I didn't see her. I had no clue she was there. Fortunately, I was half asleep and I wasn't moving either. So, you know, I, I, so I stood slowly up and I turned around slowly to look at her. Like, well, I'm not going to shoot the doe, but maybe she'll, you know, bring in, uh, um, you know, something with horns. And uh, she didn't. Uh, she just uh, stood down there and ate for blessed ever. Uh, right when I was trying to leave too. Um, but, you know, she snuck up on me and I don't like things sneaking up on me. I have more stories about things sneaking up on me. Uh, when I'm hunting, well, then there's, of course, those people who like to sneak up on me in church and scare me. Um, do so at your own peril. That's all I have to say about that one, sneaking up on me. But incline your ear as you're moving the ear around. You're trying to hear even the tiniest little noise. He says, incline your ear. The thought carries over from the idea of letting your soul delight here in fatness of this feast to consciously incline your ear to what God will say. Why do you have to consciously incline your ear to something? I know why I do. It's because I have a hard time hearing somebody speaking to me sometimes if there's other sounds going on. If I'm in a, an airport or if I'm in a restaurant, I have a hard time hearing the person across from me speaking to me. I can hear every other conversation in that building, but I cannot hear the person across from me speaking. I don't know why that is, but so I have to purposefully incline my ear. Why? Because I want to hear what is being said. I am purposefully turning my radar towards what is being said here. So he says, incline your ear and even get closer. Come unto me. This explains why two people can hear and listen to the same message. One benefits from that message, but the other does not. Simply because one did not incline ear. He says, hear, and your soul shall live. The benefit of, of inclining your ear towards God is this. It is life. Incline your ear. It is life. And then he says, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. So to the commands that we've seen thus far, the commands so far have been Come to the waters, buy and eat from the food, but with, you don't need money. He asks them a question, why do you labor for something that doesn't satisfy? Then he tells them to hearken diligently unto me. He says to incline your ear unto me. There's another command that has been given so far. And then he says, hear in your soul, soul shall live. And then he follows those commands up with this statement where he says, I will make an everlasting covenant with you. Remember how last week I talked about in chapter 54 how um, God made a, a place for Israel and he said that um, he was not going to remove his hand from Israel. There was an everlasting kindness towards Israel uh, that the church has not replaced Israel. We talked about that back in chapter 54. And now in chapter 55 here, we read about an everlasting covenant like the one he made with David. I like the sound of everlasting. Now that's not something that I can provide. No matter how hard I may try, nothing I do am I going to be perfect at doing consistently forever. 
because I won't have the strength to do it forever and I won't have the memory to do it forever and I won't have the consistency or the discipline to do it forever. That's one reason why I refuse to make promises and try to teach my children to do the same. You know, if you say you're going to do it, you do it. You don't have to promise. But if you promise, then you absolutely have to go through it. And so most often I'll just say, I'll try, or I hope so, or, you know, something like that, or we'll see rather uh, than making any promises or we'll do our best if nothing else gets in the way. And another good way for Christians to say that is Lord willing, rather than saying, I promise to take you camping next weekend. Even though we can't control what circumstances may arise between now and then, all our kids know are, is we broke our promise. Say, well, if the Lord wills, if we can, if it works out, then then we, you know, I would like for us to do this. But when God makes an everlasting covenant, he doesn't get tired of us and say, you know what, never mind, everlasting doesn't mean everlasting to me. I think God understands the idea of eternal and everlasting. And so when he makes an everlasting covenant to us, he, he is the one that follows through. We may not be the one to follow through. We may be the one to break our side of the deal quite often, but he is not. He speaks of David. The promise that he gave to David. Why does he speak concerning David here? He speaks concerning the covenant made with David that one day through his lineage, there is going to be a king, that there is going to be a savior, a Messiah to come through the line of David. And so he speaks of this covenant with David and he talks about David as a leader. Look at what he says. Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people, a leader and commander to the people. Behold. Thou shalt call a nation that thou knowest not, and nations that knew not thee shall run unto thee because of the Lord thy God and for the Holy One of Israel, for he hath glorified thee. So he's talking about a couple of events here. He says, I may, I'm going to listen to me because I'm going to make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David, just like the covenant that I made with David. Of course, we think about David's life. There was some things to commend. In David's life, man, he was a man after God's own heart. He was serving the Lord even as a young boy when God called him. He was uh, fearless. I mean, he was a humble, you know, shepherd out in the hills. But man, when it came time to jump in there and fight, he was fearless when he knew he was doing what's right. When he knew that he was doing what's right, he knew God was backing him up. And so he was fearless to forge ahead toward that giant, toward that lion toward that bear, and even toward the Philistines and other battles that he went on to as a king. But we also know that David had some other issues in his life. There was a time where he was supposed to be at war with his army, but I don't know if it was laziness or what it was. Comfort, somehow, he had lulled himself into a sense of security, he had stayed home, and then he found himself in a place he wasn't supposed to be in, being tempted by something, and he didn't look away. And he allowed that temptation to turn into lust, and he allowed that lust to turn into sin, and that sin turned into death. Not only did Bathsheba's husband die, but their baby also died. And of course, in David's family, you have incest, you have murder, and then later in David's life, you have a civil war that goes on where even his own son tries to steal the nation away from David. And there's a battle where he's trying to kill David, his father, and David's army and his mighty men. And there was some rough stuff going on in David's time. But notice 
the word that is used there before we see David. Even the sure mercies of David. Why would David need mercy? For the same reason you and I need mercy. We need mercy because we sin. We need mercy because today we fell. Yesterday we fell. Tomorrow we'll probably sin again. Maybe in different ways. And this certainly is no excuse to sin, nor do I intend to put you at ease and think that, oh, it's okay, I'm human. It's okay to sin once in a while. That's not it at all. But God showed his tender mercies to David. I like that. David was a witness here. Why? Because he had a real relationship, a real experience with God. You know what a witness is? A witness is someone who has been there, who can speak from experience. Now, I can get up and I can witness to you about the Civil War, or can I? Well, I wasn't there. I've read stories, I've watched movies, and I've watched documentaries, I've visited battlefields. So can I really witness to you or testify to you about the Civil War? No, because I cannot speak from experience. Maybe I could get up and try to witness to you about the specialness of a relationship with a movie star. Oh, she's so wonderful, she's so beautiful, she's so talented. And I could, well, actually, no, I can't witness to you about that, can I? Because I've never had it. I've never experienced it. I never had that relationship with them, so I can't tell you about that relationship. But you see, I do have a relationship with God. And because of that, I can witness to somebody else. This is what a witness is. This is testifying about something that I have experienced. Okay, so David, we go back to him. He is called a witness here. Why? Because David was a man after God's own heart. David had a walking, talking, real, everyday relationship with God. A relationship with God that had its mountaintops for sure. A relationship with God that had some pretty deep valleys as well but he had a real relationship with God. And God showed David mercy. And God let David back in. When David sought forgiveness, when he confessed his sin before God, God let him back in. And once more, he and God the Father were walking hand in hand in a walking, talking, real relationship. And so God is using David here to witness to the people. David did not lead through popularity polls. He didn't just give the people of Israel what he wanted. David witnessed something from God, and he gave his testimony to the people. This is, this is in, in one way, this is what a preacher is also to be. It's not that I just go and find a message to preach to the people, and in a sense, I am to be testifying to the church what God has been working in my heart on. So if it, sometimes it seems like I'm preaching on the same thing over the time, well, you know what God's been working on me on. You know, maybe some of the areas I struggled in because uh, I preach on it. 
least that's the way it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be working in my heart long before I can ever testify of it to you. Think about Isaiah. Isaiah couldn't just make up stuff to go and tell to the people. It had to be spoken to his heart by God first. And then could Isaiah go out and testify before the people of Israel and reveal to them what God had already revealed to him, what God had put into his heart. You know, it's curious that David is used here. God refers to him as a a leader, as a commander. David's reign can be seen as as being quite a a struggle, much difficulty during his rule. But what also we see here when he talks about David is this. It shows here that David's heart after God meant more than just outward success, comfort, and ease. It also shows that God's best and most effective don't always necessarily have it easy. I don't know what Paul's thorn in the flesh was. Many suggest it was his poor eyesight. Maybe it was something else. Nevertheless, it was something that he struggled with. You know, we would be naive to think that we are the only person in this room struggling with something. That we are the only person in this room who gets tempted or the only person in this room that sins. Because I can tell you that you are looking at probably the chief among sinners. My, my kids will agree with you. My wife would agree with you. I hide it for you all, but you know, God would certainly agree with you. You might not, though. You might see yourself as the chief among sinners because you know all of your sins. Now, we can go and compare ourselves to people like David and think, well, man, at least I haven't done that, you know. But uh, that's, not, that's not healthy for us spiritually to compare ourselves to others. It's like giving ourselves a pat on the back because we aren't as bad. You know, the fact is, sin is sin. And it all needs to be forgiven. And sin puts us all in the exact same place. Before we're saved, it puts us on the road to eternal destruction and hell. After we're saved, it puts us in separation from God so that we cannot talk with Him, so that the relationship between us is broken. But understand this. When you see somebody who God uses greatly, It's not because they have an easy road. He calls David a commander in Israel. Even with his his tender shepherd's heart, there was also a boldness in his leadership as well. Now these prophecies that are being spoken of here, there's a fulfillment to those prophecies. I want you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 30. We'll go through these two fulfillments here and then we'll stop for this evening. Look over at Jeremiah chapter 30 here. You know, we're talking about, uh, again, just to to remind you of what we're talking about. He says, I will make an everlasting covenant with you. So we're talking about Israel into eternity, an everlasting promise, uh, a contract with them, even the sure mercies of David. So I'll make a covenant with you to show you the same mercies that I had shown to David when David came back after that time of sin. So Israel, will I show you that same tender mercy? And I've given him as a witness so that you can look at his life and see my heart through David. I've given him for a witness to the people, a leader and commander to the people. 
And then he begins to speak about future events. Jeremiah 30, look at verse number 9. Got to go find it, I lost it. Jeremiah 30, verse number 9, he says this, But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up unto them. Pause for a second. Jeremiah, did he live before or after David? After. So are they is, is King David going to be resurrected out of his grave and become king again? No. Who's this speaking of? Jesus. It's speaking of Jesus. And so here's a, a prophecy again about Jesus that's going to come and he's going to reign a thousand years here on this earth. All right, look over to Ezekiel 34. I see Freddie's still not convinced, so i got to show you another one. Look at Ezekiel chapter number 34, verse number 23. I'm kidding, he doesn't look unconvinced. Looks like he needs some coffee. <laughs> Ezekiel chapter number 34, look at verse 23. Ezekiel 34, verse 23 says this, And I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, even my servant David. Again, pause. Uh, did David live before or after Ezekiel? Before. Okay, so again, is this talking about raising David up from the grave, the, the literal man? No. So then who is it speaking of? Well, we keep reading. I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, even my servant David. He shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd, and I, the Lord... At capital, all caps, this is Jehovah. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will make with them a covenant of peace and will cause the evil beast to cease out of the land, and they shall dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. What does this sound a whole lot like to you? The millennial reign of Christ. When Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning in Jerusalem for a thousand years, and during that time, the lamb shall lie down with the lion. During that time, there'll be peace there. So this servant David here being spoken of in these prophecies is very clearly Jesus Christ. We go on. Well, I'll stop there. The rest of the passage that we read there up through verse number five uh, says, let me find it here. Behold, thou shalt call a nation that thou knowest not, and nations that knew not thee shall run unto thee because of the Lord thy God. And again, we're looking woo, way down into end times beyond anywhere we've been yet. We haven't, we haven't seen these times yet. But we're looking to a time where all the nations of the world are going to be coming to Israel, to where King David, or well, really Jesus Christ, is ruling and reigning. And everybody's attention is going to be there, not like its attention is there right now, but everybody's attention is going to be in Israel, and they're going to be longing for it. And why? Because of the Lord thy God and for the Holy One of Israel. That's Jesus Christ. For he hath glorified thee. We'll come back to these passages next Wednesday night and keep going. Like I said, Isaiah 55 is good. Um, of course, I'm going to tell you that no matter what I'm about to preach on. Um, tell you that it's good and you're just going to have to get excited about it anyways. 
uh, but I'm enjoying studying it and going through the book of Isaiah. We've gotten into some good stuff. It's nice to be past the woe unto you and curse you and all that kind of stuff of the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. We get into the comforting part, and I can certainly find a lot of comfort uh, in these verses, and especially to me, the idea that the most, and I guess I'll just leave you with this thought, some of the most effective Christians throughout history did not have the easiest walks, the easiest lives. They had some pretty exceptional struggles in their life. And I think that's a, it's a good thought for us to remember. We want it easy. And we want to have this, you know, insanely successful spiritual walk. But sometimes it takes the fire of testing to make us, to bring us to that point where we can be used tremendously by the Lord, to prepare us for that, to hone our edges so that we can be sharp and effective. You've been listening to Straight from the Pulpit podcast from the pulpit of Shenandoah Baptist Church in Verona, Virginia. Be sure to follow this podcast and share this sermon with a friend. And if you're listening on Spotify, please leave us a five-star review. See you next time.